Welcome to the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast. I'm your host, Brian Russell, and today I'm going to address deconstruction. And in fact, I'm going to make the audacious claim on this podcast that the Bible models and perhaps even advocates for deconstruction. What is deconstruction? A deconstruction is when a person struggles and sometimes even loses their faith and uh, their connection with old versions of believing. And sometimes people deconstruct all the way out of the faith. But I want to put an interesting twist to it because I'm going to talk about deconstruction on this podcast in a deeply personal way because I've had my own season in which I felt as though I were deconstructing and not just felt like I was deconstructing. I think that I did. So this is going to be me being a little vulnerable uh, today, but I trust that this is going to help several different types of people. First of all, I hope that there's someone listening here who's really struggling in their faith today. That uh, well, I hope you're not struggling, but if if I if I hope that if someone is struggling and listening to these words, that I can encourage you as a fellow pilgrim uh, through seasons of darkness. I also hope that my words will encourage and help and empower pastors, lay people, family members who aren't exactly sure how to help or even how to talk about deconstruction with persons whom you may be serving who are indeed feeling that disconnect. So before I jump in, though, let me just remind everyone I've been a little behind on getting podcasts published over the last few weeks. I do have quite a few lined up here for the rest of 2022, so accept my apology for not getting these out weekly as I had been previously. Hoping to get back to that rhythm very soon. And I also want to invite anyone who is interested in deepening your own contemplative practice uh, to join me and my friend and fellow Centering Prayer book author Rich Lewis for a monthly Centering Prayer gathering. We're doing these essentially on the third Saturday of each month. Uh, That's true at least through 2022, and we'll get some dates up for 2023 soon. If you'd like to be invited or to find more information out about Centering Prayer, you can go to centeringprayerbook.com and sign up. All you have to do is give your email, and I'll make sure you get invited. And uh, as those of you who are already on the list know, I don't send a lot of emails, so it's not one of those sign up and get 4 million emails from me continuously. It's just on occasion, but I'll send you invites and some updates when I think something would be really valuable to help you grow in your faith. Of course, you can always find out a little bit more about me at brianrussellphd.com. That's the one-stop shop for all of uh, my online material, and you can find links to all the various places where I do post content, as well as uh, links back to even the older episodes of this podcast. So without further ado, let's jump in and talk about deconstruction in the Bible and in the modern world. Right, as I've already said, I, I think the Bible models and even advocates 
for deconstruction, the process of growth and love, which is ultimately what our encounters with God is about, right? We want to grow in love for God, for our neighbor, and even for ourself. But that process of growth and love is going to ultimately involve dissolving false belief, superstition, and any bad theology that denies our actual embodied experience as well as the idolatrous projections of false gods in the name of the true God. In other words, deconstruction be, can be helpful in those circumstances where it's actually burning out the false views about God that many of us carry. And in fact, the Psalms, the book of Psalms, contain an entire genre that illustrates and actually models deconstruction. Uh, Walter Brueggemann, who is a prominent Old Testament professor, he, uh, he is remains prolific into his, I think into his 80s now, but in a book he wrote many years ago, I think this is at least 30 years old now, The Message of the Psalms, Brueggemann argued that the entire book of Psalms illustrates the movement from orientation to disorientation to reorientation. And for our purposes, I think that we can associate deconstruction specifically with what Brueggemann calls disorientation, but you can also understand deconstruction as a label for this entire movement, again, from orientation to disorientation to reorientation. I fully recognize that some persons are going to disagree with my assessment here. And in some popular opinions, to talk about reorientation assumes a return to one's prior faith. Some folks call that return a second naivety. I don't share in that assumption, but I do believe that many will eventually come through the process and find a new footing. And that new footing is what I understand as reorientation. As a person who's experienced the extreme cognitive, emotional, spiritual dissonance of deconstruction, I reconstructed within the broad categories of the Christian faith. But it wasn't merely a return back to my prior faith. Because the fact of the matter is, the faith that propelled me from age 5 to 41 died. And I'm going to say I'm grateful that it did. Not to say that I didn't do authentic things or that I didn't believe the right things or even experience levels of sanctification. But I've spent a long time waiting for lights to come back on. And what I've realized in recent days is that those lights didn't need to be come on come on because those old, some of those old lights were in fact just decoys that had drawn me away from the deepest truths about God but we'll get to that again if you're waiting for me to denigrate orthodoxy or something else that isn't going to happen in this podcast so but I'm speaking about uh, and I'm trying to encourage 
persons that simply because you've questioned long-standing beliefs, that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to carry you out of the Christian faith, because some of your long-standing beliefs probably uh, needed to be eliminated. But the fact of the matter is, even if you don't want to use language uh, quite as uh, open and maybe even as bold as I've used is, you know, you can't ever actually go back. But you can believe again. Brueggemann argues that the lament psalm represents a prayer of disorientation. In the lament psalm, the psalmist names the aspects of God's supposed character and, and a way of being that appear to be hidden other words, the psalmist remembers and recalls what he or she's been taught about God and then compares that with how their present life is going, feels the extreme disconnect, and actually cries out and, acts and asks and even demands God to actually be the God that he's supposed to be and that scripture claims that he is. Psalm 73 is the model psalm for this whole movement. In Psalm 73, if you're not familiar with it, it's one of my favorite psalms that opens with a profound statement. And there's some differences in translations, but let's just go with this one. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are upright in heart. Listen to that again. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are upright in heart. That's popular theology at its best. You know, I don't know how many religious services that I've sat through where the liturgists led the gathered faithful in the following call and response. God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. I grew up singing a little chorus, God is so good. God is so good. God is so good. He's so good to me. God answers prayer. God answers prayer. God answers prayer. He's so good to me. But what happens when God doesn't appear to be good? Or even worse, what happens when, it, when God doesn't even seem to care? That latter statement cuts to the heart of deconstruction. It's in those times where it seems like God doesn't care or that would even be irrelevant even if there were a God. So for example, if you look at Psalm 88, and I invite you, if you don't know Psalm 88, you can read 88 and 89 for that matter, but 88 in particular is one of the darkest, bleakest Psalms in all of scripture. It's, it's, the, it's a cry of an individual who's dying and he's all alone. And the psalm ends with no positive ending at all. In fact, the psalm ends with this sorrowful expectation of darkness. Psalm 89 is more of a national lament where Israel is just assuming that the old Davidic covenant is gone and that they're lost, that God's given up on them. Another lament psalm, another one of my favorites, Psalm 77. Listen to verses 7 to 9. Uh, the psalmist openly questions if God's core 
of steadfast love is changed. You know, God is love isn't just a New Testament concept. It goes all the way back to the Old Testament beginning in Exodus 34, 6 and 7. And it, and it gets quoted, that Exodus 34 text gets quoted repeatedly. Here in Psalm 77, the psalmist is wondering what happened to the God whose character is supposed supposedly love at the core. And so the psalmist writes and questions, will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love ceased forever and are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he, has he in anger shut up his compassion? Psalm 22, 1 and 2 also potently captures the pain of lostness and God's apparent lack of concern. These are the words that Jesus prays on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer and by night, but find no rest. The vast and great promises of God are both orienting features of scripture but they're also, and this is what sometimes people of faith don't understand, they're also the very grounds for disorientation when the words describing God's character and actions sound more like fiction and seem aspirational rather than the embodied reality of how God operates in our experience. In Psalm 73, the psalmist admits that his feet almost slipped. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. But as for me, my feet almost slipped, verse 2. This signals the possibility of a fall, and deconstruction literally feels as though you've slipped on a wet floor or a slippery surface, and you can't get back up. You know, in the church, we unhelpfully often talk about persons who have backslidden. You know, the directional metaphor implies a return to some aspect of their old, and often by that we mean sinful way of being. Often persons struggling with their faith face the accusation that they've either never believed or they're looking for excuses for sinful behavior. While there are likely examples of persons who fall away due to vice, I find this accusation more of a defensive response by the church rather than a reflection of reality. In fact, the type of deconstruction I'm writing about is not a return to one's former ways. It's also not an excuse for immorality or for the embrace of vices. You know, the psalmist doesn't backslide. He almost slipped. You know, slipping, if you think about it, can be as simple as a stumble in which you can just quickly regain your footing. But if one slips on the ice or on an oil slick, it may take a while to stand again. And you also can hurt yourself falling down, which makes it difficult to stand again. And when you slip, you can find yourself quite a distance from the place you originally were simply because you continue to slide as you try to stand up. If you slip on an incline surface, you may find yourself back to where you began. If you're trying to go up a hill and you, slide, you can slide all the way back down, but also, and sometimes in the journeys of life, we're actually descending in some way, you can slip and then get way ahead of where you were supposed to be. 
Psalm 73 doesn't give us the timeline, but it does tell the experience of the psalmist. And the cause of the psalmist almost slipping was the disconnect between his received theology, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are upright in heart, and his lived experience. And verse 3 describes the problem that this particular psalmist had. He said, For I was envious of the arrogant, I saw the prosperity of the wicked. In other words, the psalmist in Psalm 73 was deconstructing due to a version of the problem of evil, or more specifically because he noticed blessings were falling upon the wicked, and but his righteous life was not yielding any blessings at all. And maybe he had some mixed up version of Deuteronomy's theology or whatever, the idea that the godly are supposed to have a good life. You know, verses 4 to 12 of Psalm 73 fill in the details for us. The psalmist looks at his life in comparison to those who don't follow in the ways of God, and he calls these persons wicked and arrogant. If you've read through the Psalter, you know those characters. The wicked and the arrogant, those are the persons that stand in contrast and some in outright opposition to the righteous. You can go back to Psalm 1. So, so what does the psalmist see? He sees the ungodly enjoying what Benjamin Franklin might have labeled healthy, wealthy, and wise living, whereas the psalmist himself presumably experiences the opposite of that despite his faithfulness and belief in God. The wicked can appear prosperous where the psalmist only experiences lack. Now, let me be clear here. This isn't the only way that one can deconstruct. One can deconstruct uh, by, in some cases, if you've listened to enough people talk, by, by being deeply disappointed with the way other Christians believe or the way that other Christians act. They can be deeply disappointed by some event that cuts to their own heart and they're crushed in some way. So we have to be open to a variety of of reasons. I'm focusing on Psalm 73 because it illustrates this shift that I'm talking about, but everybody's story of deconstruction is going to be a little bit different. But the thing in common is, is that previous belief just no longer seems believable, let alone livable. And so what happens to the psalmist in Psalm 73? They get to this point in the psalm, and this would be verses 13 to 17, where the psalmist says, beginning in verse 13, All in vain, or surely I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. You know, I love the psalmist here. He's looking at how he's lived his life. But he's transparent. He's looking back and he's telling his story. You know, when he writes these words, he's looking back from having regained his footing, but he affirms and gives voice to the many among the faithful who have expressed such thoughts to their closest confidants and kept such ideas to themselves. You know, very few people ever knew that I was really struggling in my faith. And in fact, one time I actually tried to share my struggle with one of my best friends. And uh, I told him over dinner one day, I'm like, you know, sometimes it feels like I'm an atheist. So I remember my friend's words. He just laughed at me and he goes, Brian, you're not an atheist. 
you're just really honest and God's stripping you of things that need to be stripped out of your life. Now, I didn't like that answer at all, and I found it um, not particularly helpful. But now looking back after all these years, I can think, see there was some real wisdom in that. You know, because I was there, surely in vain, I've kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. But then the, the psalmist continues to describe the struggle. And listen to this, because this is where we need to have compassion. Persons who are struggling in their faith need to be loved. They need to be heard. They need to be allowed to share their deepest struggles without a uh, without quick fix, you know, cheap theology. Because I can just tell you, if um, a cheap Bible verse or a piece of theology um, could have helped me, I wouldn't have ever struggled at all. Because I've kind of heard it all and read stuff. And so, people that are struggling need authentic love and support in community, not just hey, you should read verse blank. Um, you know, if it was that easy, the person wouldn't be struggling in the first place. So listen to what the psalmist says, verses 15 and 16. If I had said I will talk in this way, I would have been untrue to the circle of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Anyone who's struggling with deconstruction and remains within a faith community will resonate with these verses. You know, as a seminary professor, I have the privilege of working with women and men who sense God's call in their lives. I routinely hear powerful testimonies from them of God's grace. I actually enjoy being around folks who are all in in terms of devoting their lives to serving as agents of God's love. And in my darkest days of doubt, I kept my mouth shut out of respect and love for the faithful. They had something that I at least thought I'd lost. And I refused to become a cosmic killjoy whose new mission was merely to pull others down into the abyss that I felt like I was in. One of my favorite movies is Braveheart. The protagonist, William Wallace of Scotland, seeks to avenge the cruel execution of his wife by fighting against the suffocating oppression of the English. Throughout the film, Wallace seeks to convince the nobles, especially the powerful Robert the Bruce, to unite to overthrow the English occupiers. Wallace suffers a cruel betrayal in a pivotal battle in which Robert the Bruce sides with the English king Edward Longshanks. During the battle, Wallace unknowingly fights Robert the Bruce, whose head and face are covered with an armored helmet. After knocking Bruce to the ground, Wallace peels back his face shield and realizes the depth of the betrayal that cost him so many men on the battlefield that day. The look of disgust and sadness in Wallace's eyes penetrates the very soul of Robert the Bruce. A little later in a scene in which Robert's leprosy-covered father seeks to console him, Robert undertakes a massive shift. Up until this moment, he had followed his father's cynical and self-serving counsel. The elder Bruce focused only on the preservation of limited privilege by bowing down to the English overlords. But Robert the Bruce wanted more. The elder said, All men betray. All men lose heart. Robert cried out, I don't want to lose heart. I want to believe as he does. I'll never be on the wrong side again. 
The movie ends with Robert the Bruce leading the Scots into battle against the English after Wallace had been executed. He had gained the courage to step into a new future in which he too now had real belief. The psalmist wanted to believe too, but as verse 16 states, it was a wearisome task to resolve the contradictions of experience and faith. I found myself in the exact same territory for a season. I wanted to believe. And in fact, I wanted to protect everybody who already believed so they didn't end up falling into the hole that I was. And to my closest friends I used to talk about, it felt like I was hanging on the edge of an abyss of unbelief, holding up a stop sign simply to make sure that no one got within too close lest they fall into. Verse 17 marks the shift in, this, in the psalmist's experience. He enters the sanctuary. You know, and I could say in my own life, you know, I never stopped reading the scriptures. I never stopped worshiping. I never stopped praying. In fact, those of you who know me for my centering prayer, uh, centering prayer is what the pivotal moment was for me and doing prayer of exam and in journaling. I did the contemplative practices even when it seemed like for most of the time I was just literally sitting alone in the dark. So the psalmist does sort of what I try to do as well. He just he just does goes to where he thinks he needs to go. He goes to the sanctuary. And what's fun about Psalm 73, it doesn't say what happened. You know, we don't know if it was the message he heard. We don't know if it was a prayer. We know it was the incense. We don't know if it was just the beauty of the inside of the building. We don't know if it was something that somebody inside the sanctuary, another worshiper said. But it simply marks the change. And then the psalmist says, then I perceived their end. He's thinking back to the reason for his deconstruction when he was focusing on the prosperity of the wicked. You know, implicit is some sort of transcendent or unitive moment in which the lights sort of come back on again metaphorically. The psalmist saw life and the universe in a new way, in a way that transcended his old faith. In verses 18 and 19, narrate the psalmist's new perspective and orientation. And mostly he focuses on how he realizes that the wicked are going to perish someday. You know, and I, I can say I personally don't care for the negative comparison with the wicked whom God will bring to ruin. You know, for me, my belief in God's love and God's grace doesn't require me to revel in the destruction of others. And I can say I don't gain any comfort from the thought that some people will be separated from God's love. It doesn't do anything for me and it doesn't strengthen my faith at all. In fact... I feel deep compassion for everybody, especially persons who haven't had the opportunities that I've had to learn about God. And I'd ultimately prefer a reality in which all persons eventually become the fullest versions of themselves by embracing love of God and neighbor and self uh, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus I've always resonated more with C.S. Lewis's view of heaven and hell in his sublime, The Great Divorce, than with the images that Jonathan Edwards conjured up 
in his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, but that's, that's a whole nother podcast episode. But what I do resonate with in the psalmist's words in Psalm 73 is the new recognition of God's presence. In fact, the experience of God's presence, even in the darkness of reconstruction, seems to be the decisive game changer for moving through a dark night of the soul. I think that's the one thing that most people have in common, that there's a moment, again, a transcendent moment, a unit, a unitive experience of oneness, a sense of awe and grandeur that just shakes the person and opens up their eyes in a way that they can experience God like they've never experienced God before. But don't get me wrong when we talk about this kind of experience. God, most of the time, or maybe we can even say almost never, appears in the spectacular. God often appears in what may be termed the ordinary. In fact, if you read the rest of Psalm 73, especially towards the end, the psalmist begins to speak about the presence of God in his life. Look at verse 23, 25, and 28. And in fact, the biggest shift that takes place in Psalm 73 are not externals. In fact, the psalmist's life, at least on the external side, there's no indication that anything has changed. But what has changed is his inner game and his witness and how he now appropriates that proverb from verse 1, truly God was good to the upright, to those who are pure in heart, and notice how it shifts. It's no longer just theology that he confesses. It's lived reality. So verse 28, listen to it, how it actually ends the psalm by restating verse 1, but in a deeply personal way that then also becomes missional. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge to tell of all your works. You know, so how is God good? God's good because he can be near to us. And I know in my life that nearness has rarely been evident in anything spectacular. It's been in the quiet talk about Elijah again, but remember Elijah's experience. He encountered God not in the spectacular in an earthquake or the wind or the fire. He encountered God in sheer silence. The psalmist shifted from an external scorecard in which God proves himself with external blessings to an internal inner awareness that the highest good is the experience of God's presence. Friends, nothing can ever take that away. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, Paul says. It's an inner game. It's an inner thing. The psalmist has moved from allowing external comparisons with the lives and experiences of others to define his experience of God, to simply recognize that, recognizing that being with God is the highest good. Most powerfully, the psalmist adopts the posture of witness. He wants to tell others. He becomes a witness to grace rather than a person whose voice was lost in the complexity of deconstruction. Again, don't miss the reality, again, that 
anything's changed for the psalmist externally. There's no report that he's now suddenly healthy or wealthy, but he's certainly wiser on the inside by recognizing that God is near the chaos and the counter testimonies around him. Uh, despite those things, there's a new, more resilient and authentic faith emerged. It was a faith that was more than mere confession. It was heart-centered. And I want to suggest it was all ultimately probably what happens is a moment of surrender. A moment where the psalmist just flat out accepted the fact that he was unconditionally accepted. An existential moment. Again, surrendering maybe to the absurdity of his life, to his struggles. In the second that he let go, I'm guessing that's the moment where everything changed because in the full surrender, you're always going to meet God's love. It was a faith no longer rooted in mere confession, and I'm not denigrating confessions in any way. It was heart-centered now. In other words, the visceral disappointment that the psalmist had experienced with the old received theology. And let me speak directly to everybody listening here now and rephrase that, make it personal for us. In other words, visceral disappointment with our old received theology can actually lead to profound experiences that open up new futures for us with God. The experience of the author of Psalm 73 reminds me of other places in the Old Testament that point to similar shifts. And we'll look at the New Testament towards the end as well. Above, we cited Psalm 77 at 7 to 9's open questioning of God's love. Verse 10 then recounts true despair. The psalmist in Psalm 77, listen to this. It's my grief. The right hand of the Most High has changed. And if you know that language, the right hand, that's, the, that's you know, God delivered Israel with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Exodus 15 talks about your right hand, O Lord, was mighty and glorious. Deconstruction often involves recognizing that the God you believed in seems to have changed. Well, how does Psalm 77 move forward? It's a little bit different than Psalm 73. What happens in Psalm 77 is the psalmist begins to ponder deeply the old stories of the faith, the Exodus and the Red Sea crossing. The deliverance from Egypt was the bedrock gospel for Israel. It was the equivalent of the Christian. Of, it, it would have been the equivalent of a Christian in despair thinking, rethinking the cross and resurrection of Jesus. The psalmist reaffirms that core story of Exodus, but he does so with an interesting twist. First, he offers an imaginative and poetic rendering of the Red Sea crossing in 77 verses 16 to 18. And it's noisy, it's multi-sensory. Uh, it's not just a narrative, it's experiential. It's, it's, it's as though the psalmist is singing a worship song about the event that he'd learned in the temple. It's evoking emotion with poetic language. But then after that, in verse 19, he moves to a more narrative style description of God opening a path through the waters and leading his people through it by the hand of Moses and Aaron. But Psalm 77, 19c is one of my, has one of my favorite lines in Scripture. He talks about going through the waters of the Red Sea, but it says, Yet your footprints 
or unseen. So often we think that if only I'd been present for the miracles of the Bible, I'd be able to have a more certain faith. But Psalm 77 throws a wrench right into that idea by suggesting that God wasn't visible even in the Red Sea crossing. Yes, the water opened, but there wasn't a public service announcement that said, God is here to save you. The psalmist instead writes, yet your footprints were unseen, suggests that God was hidden even in one of the most powerful displays in the scripture. Instead, Israel had Moses and Aaron, you know, and what do they represent? Moses represents scripture, the witness to what God's done. And what does Aaron ultimately represent in scripture? The temple, the priesthood, the place of worship. And friends, we still have those things today too. We have the scriptures like we're talking about. And we have places to gather for worship. And in fact, you know, in the New Testament, the temple even becomes our bodies where we become the temple of the Holy Spirit. We still have those things. So how did this recognition serve the author of the psalmist in Psalm 77 in the midst of his theological crisis? Again, the issue is the experience of God's presence rather than some external proof. The mention of Moses and Aaron, again, points to what's available to us, Torah and temple. God remains invisible but his presence is real. Elijah had a similar experience of both the miraculous and the hiddenness of God. In Psalm 18, uh, 1 Kings 18, Elijah achieves a great victory over the prophets of Baal in which the Lord shows up powerfully in response to Elijah's prayer to demonstrate that the Lord is truly God. But then in the very next chapter in 1 Kings 19, Elijah loses heart. When Queen Jezebel threatens his life, so he has to flee to Mount Horeb, again, Mount Sinai, seeking after God. Horeb was, of course, the site of the revelation of the Torah to Israel through Moses. At Horeb, in the first time back in Exodus 19, 16 to 20, God showed up with loud sounds, fire, smoke, shaking the ground. I'm guessing that Elijah went back hoping for such powerful signs as a means of regain, restoring his courage and his faith. But instead, Elijah does not, encounter, does not encounter God like that. Yeah, he does encounter wind and an earthquake and a fire, 1 Kings 19, 11, and 12. But the Lord isn't present in any of those signs. Rather, God shows up in sheer silence. God does end up speaking with Elijah, but the message is clear. Don't assume the spectacular. God exists in silence. Let me offer up the prophet Habakkuk as a final example from the Old Testament. Habakkuk served as a prophet in, in the late 7th century, just as Judah was on the brink of defeat to the mighty and cruel Neo-Babylonian Empire. Habakkuk didn't question the wickedness of God's people, but he was perplexed that God would use an evil foreign empire as the means of judging God's people Yet he decides to sit in a posture of trust. The rest of Habakkuk's book records the visions that he gained in silent waiting. Famously, Habakkuk 2.4 records, but the righteous will live by faith. 
The use of faith here is slightly different than how Paul applies it in the New Testament. Faith for Habakkuk suggests a trust that leads to a leads to a manner of life that is faithfulness. The action of living is not separated from belief. Connecting belief and skin in the game, living is necessary for moving through a deconstruction. When we, when a person feels like they're deconstructing, they don't need more confessions or instructions on theology. They need to find a way of believing rightly, not just believing rightly. They need transformation, not information. And I'm not suggesting they're lacking something, but people want to experience the reality of the faith, not just the story of the faith. And those things are profoundly different, friends. Connecting belief and skin in the game is critical as we've already reflected it's the disconnect between those two that often lies at the heart of the dark night of the soul habakkuk then has visions of god as a mighty warrior and understands that god is a, has the future under control this is chapter three habakkuk reorients and accepts that his present external reality masks the truth of the universe in fact despite evidence to the contrary habakkuk sees and paints for us a powerful portrait of God establishing a world that isn't built by violence, injustice, cruelty, and evil practices by God's people, which led to the Babylonians coming, or the horrific evil that the Babylonians inflicted on God's people. And you can read about some of those things at the end of Second Kings and even look at the painful in the words of the of the psalm 137 if you want to see some of those horrors so habakkuk recognizes god is at work behind the scenes preparing a good future inviting us to live into its coming martin luther king jr championed a similar sentiment with his famous line we shall overcome because the arc of the moral universe is long but it bends towards justice even after the visions Habakkuk experienced in silence, he remains in a posture of quiet. And he says, I wait quietly for the calamity to come upon the people who attack us. Then Habakkuk ends his book with a profound confession and a new space to inhabit. Though the fig tree does not blossom and no fruit is on the vine, Though the produce of the olive fails and the fields yield no food, though the flock is cut off from the fold and yet, and there is no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will exalt in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer and makes me tread upon the heights. Habakkuk, by this point, left the building. If that old building was the realm of magical or superstitious thinking about God. God wasn't going to save them from the Babylonians. Yeah, God's acted powerful and explicitly, but God plays a long game. And Habakkuk had to walk a path, walk his path, walk the path during a profoundly difficult season for himself personally as well as for all of the faithful and the unfaithful alike in Judah. In those dark days of the late 7th and early 6th century, 
God's people were in fact overrun by the Babylonians. That included the faithful and the unfaithful. Jerusalem, along with the temple, were destroyed. Many were killed. Countless others were exiled to Babylon for an entire generation. But Habakkuk, in the silence, experienced the truth about God being with him again, and God's presence changed him. Before we wrap this up, let's move ahead to the New Testament to New Testament and think about the core confession of the gospel itself that Jesus Christ is Lord. The first followers of Jesus all experienced deconstruction, orientation, disorientation, reorientation. If they hadn't, there would be no Christ following movement. Jesus's core message was the inbreaking of God's kingdom. He offended the religious leaders of his day by challenging the received interpretations of the Torah. Even his own followers didn't understand Jesus until after the resurrection. They may have gravitated to his radical teaching and miracle working powers, but if you remember, they scattered at the moment of his execution. Peter modeled both the exemplary pieces of this element and the opposite. You know, he's Peter's the one that spoke up at Caesarea Philippi and said that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. <laughs> but then at Jesus' arrest, Peter was the first to save his own skin by denying any relationship with Jesus. Jesus' death thus was the disorienting moment for his disciples. I talk about a dark night of the soul. I can't even imagine what it must have been like to see the person that you believed in die on a cross and all your dreams just crushed. And now you're just hiding, hoping the Romans don't come looking for you. You know, Jesus' death was the disorienting moment for the disciples. Messiah and death on a cross didn't compute. Even the initial announcement of resurrection didn't make sense to them. It's impossible. Thomas famously doubted until he touched Jesus' nail-pierced hands. The disciples on the road to Emmaus didn't have the potential of resurrection in their minds, so they didn't even know they were talking about talking with Jesus until he kind of disappeared. In Galilee, Jesus appears alive and well to the remaining eleven, and Matthew 28:17 records their response, and it's so interesting. Matthew 28:17, that the eleven remaining disciples are standing. And Jesus is in front of them. And it says, they worshiped him, but some still doubted, but some doubted. Imagine that you're standing before a man whom you saw arrested and crucified, yet he's alive and well right in front of you, and you doubt. Doubt is fully compatible with faith. Too many of us get trapped in magical thinking about certainty and equate doubt and uncertainty as signs of lost faith. I want to suggest that this review of biblical texts are actually indications that doubt and uncertainty are likely positive signs of an authentic faith that will actually stand the tests of time. 
Encountering the crucified and risen Jesus called a full, caused a full-blown deconstruction and reconstruction. Jesus even had to show his disciples how to reread the Old Testament to make sense of the new reality before them. It says in Luke 24, it says, Jesus opened their minds to the scriptures. The Apostle Paul had the same kind of experience on the road to Damascus. It was a movement from orientation to deconstruction to reconstruction. As he testified in Philippians 3, he counted his life prior to Jesus as loss in comparison with the surpassing greatness of simply knowing Christ Jesus. Paul's new sinner was the crucified and risen Jesus who now gave his life meaning. Rather than certainty rooted in his past beliefs, Paul found meaning in the existential embrace of the journey to maturity. He wrote, Beloved, and I consider that I've made it my own, but this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature be of the same mind. And if you think differently about anything, this too God will reveal to you. This is some of my favorite verses in Scripture from Philippians 3, 13 to 15. Now let me speak directly to anyone listening right now who's presently struggling with the reality of the Christian faith. Whatever happened in your life that's led you to this moment, and it's led you to question and feel adrift, I want you to know that your experience has deep biblical roots. You can go back and listen to this all over again if you need to review those texts. You're not the first one to experience whatever doubts, questions, fears, anxiety, whatever else you're feeling right now. Are you deconstructing? Good. Don't judge yourself. The truth of the matter is this. God is either real or God isn't. And today is as good a time as any to get to the heart of the matter. Ask the hard questions. Do it courageously. Don't be afraid of what somebody's going to say. Don't turn into a member of the frozen chosen. Ask the hard question. Be fearless in your quest for truth or a truth or even a half truth that you can stand upon again. Perhaps you'll even discover a vision of the infinite that is even more beautiful, more meaningful, and even more transformational than your old self could have ever imagined. That's my story. Perhaps your deconstruction will open you fully to a God above the God of mere theism who is love and light, as 1 John tells us. Perhaps you too will find a new way of, think, of looking at the world as it is rather than just as you hope it will be. True deconstruction or reconstruction do not leave a person unchanged. You just don't go back to the way you were because you can't. The past is a foreign country. The choice isn't ultimately going back to some suffocating former stage that wasn't able to sustain you in your love for God and neighbor. You can't go back to the old ways, but you also don't have 
to go so far to the place where you feel like you have to make your own way. In my mind, I already said this, it's not by trying harder, it's by dying. It's by surrendering. Metaphorically, I thought I was hanging on the abyss of, of, of doubt and un, unbelief, but metaphorically, I would say the way that I've gotten to the place where I am now and I've been for a, a, a good chunk of years now is at some point, I just let go and gave up and surrendered and fell into the abyss. And then God was actually there the whole time waiting for me to surrender. You know, deconstruction or reconstruction will represent a radical upgrade in your operating system. You'll move from black and white television to color and full HD. Biblical texts and characters were all lost, the ones we were talking about, but then they were found. But found wasn't just going back to the status quo. And in many ways, I would suggest biblical deconstruction and reconstruction follows the way of the contemplative life. The tension between certainty and uncertainty actually heightens for us. Listen to the words from Thomas Merton in his book, New Seeds of Contemplation. Let no one hope to find in, con in contemplation an escape from conflict, from anguish, and, or from doubt. For every gain in deep certitude, there is a corresponding growth of superficial doubt. This torment is a, uh, is a kind of trial by fire in which we are compelled by the very light of invisible truth, which has reached us in the dark ray of contemplation to examine, to doubt, and finally to reject all the prejudices and conventions that we have hitherto accepted as if they were dogmas. You know, in the end, the contemplative suffers the anguish of realizing that he no longer knows what God is. That's what Merton says. Because there is no such thing as God, because God is neither a what nor a thing, but God is pure who. Friends, often we will feel lost. And the actual reason for that is that the God we used to worship wasn't actually worthy of our praise in the first place. It is at such moments that one may actually experience the power of grace in its purest and most powerful form. In the midst of my doubt, anxiety, and shame, while in the silence of deep contemplation, I felt a stirring in my soul that can only have been God's love touching me. I knew I was loved. I know, I knew that I didn't have to do anything or be anything to receive it. I only had to accept the fact that I, Brian Russell, was unconditionally accepted by God in Jesus Christ. In this moment, to paraphrase Paul Tillich, I found anew the courage to be and believe as I encountered the God, the true God who is really there when my old 
little G-God had disappeared in my season of doubt. Thanks be to God. This story resonated with you. I would It would be a privilege to have a conversation with you. I'd also suggest some resources that you may find helpful in your journey. Again, I mentioned Thomas Merton's New Seeds of Contemplation. That's a great book. My own book, I have it behind me, Centering Prayer, Sitting Quietly in God's Presence Can Change Your Life. We'll, we'll share in a different way how I used contemplative prayer, centering prayer, to be renewed in my faith. I've also found really helpful a book by Gerald May. Gerald May has great books, and this is one of my favorites. It's The Dark Night of the Soul. He goes deep uh, on the connection between darkness and spiritual growth and does a deep dive into Teresa of Avila and St. John of the Cross. And I would also suggest a, a more recent book by a good a friend of mine. He was a past podcast guest. I'll link to his podcast episode in the notes. It's A.J. Swoboda. He has a great book called After Doubt, How to Question Your Faith Without Losing It. So my friends, it's been an absolute privilege to share a little bit of my story. My goal here is to build up and I want you to know I share this from the depths of my heart and my whole ministry now essentially can be phrased as working to help every single person that I have the privilege of meeting to experience that same profound love of God that I experienced at the moment when I was afraid that my feet had almost slipped. Until next time, thanks for listening. Live by faith, be known by love, and be a voice of help, hope to others. And if you know someone who might be helped by this episode, please, please share it with them.